Hello and welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. Today's conversation with the legendary triathlete Chris McCormack, aka Macca, a very good friend of mine for 20 plus years, 25 years. And it was a great conversation to really get an understanding of what his mind was like when he was an athlete. He talks about fueling himself with anger. Um, a lot different than the conversation I had with Mark Allen, also a legendary triathlete who talks about love. Um, and and it's it's the the difference between the two and yet the similarities in their performances is really quite remarkable. Uh, I love this conversation with with Maka because, you know, at one point, you know, he won world championships in 1997 and I think he was 23. Um, anyway, and he talks about, you know, having severe imposter syndrome that he, he didn't really feel that he belonged at the top of the world, that he that he, he was still looking up to all, everybody around him and suddenly he had the responsibility of the world on his shoulders now that he was a world champion. Anyway, this is a really great interview of somebody that, you know, reached the pinnacle of the sport at a young age, then continued to have success uh, throughout his career and winning multiple World Ironman championships. And then what I love about this conversation is we, we chat a lot about his ability to follow through with his dreams and his passions and none bigger than, you know, being the founder of the Super League Triathlon Series that's gone global and is just going from strength to strength. So enjoy this conversation. If you're enjoying the show, please share it um, or reach out to me um, and let me know your thoughts, uh, your feelings, if you want anything changed, who you'd like to listen to. He's got some great athletes and coaches and different people coming up. Um, but enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. All right. My next guest is a man who continues to push new boundaries. His athletic achievements in the endurance sporting world are truly outstanding. Two Ironman Kona World Championship titles a World Olympic Distance Championship, and a Long Distance World Championship title, and a list of wins that puts him amongst the most successful triathletes of all time. But it doesn't stop there. Since retiring from professional racing, he's continued to push. His most recent endeavors include co-founding the Super League Triathlon Global Series, and he's the CEO of the Bahrain Endurance Team. He's been a mate of mine for almost 25 years, and we've raced each other almost too many times to count. And I've always been blown away by this guy's passion and enthusiasm for life. Welcome, and thanks for joining me with Be With Champions, Chris McCormack. How are you, mate? Good, Benno. How are you? It's been a... Yeah. You're right. We've known each other for, what, 20? I think when you start doing the math, it could be longer than that, but we uh, the years tend to fly by as we get older. You start going, wow, I know. five years, it's crazy. I was so excited to have you say yes to come and join me on the show because there, there's so much to talk about. I uh, we we can talk for probably hours about all the stories of our racing and some of the training camps we did in the '90s and early '90s, and and then your progression. You know, I think you kind of went towards Ironman, and I stayed sort of on the short course track. But what you then went on to do in the Ironman world was remarkable, um, and I, I'll never forget that race you had with. Um, uh, gosh, what's his name? The German. Um, you forgot already. <laughs> no, 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 no. Without Andy Raylett and two ten. Andy Raylett. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But just an incredible. That was an incredible race. And then you went on to still win world long course champs when you were. Gosh, how old were you there? Thirty nine, forty. Thirty nine. Yeah, getting old. Thirty nine, which was was was. Yeah, we're old. I know. <laughs> I wish I did stay. But, you look at back at it though. I wish I did stay racing the short course stuff because it was uh, 
I think I went across to that long stuff a little little too young, a little early, and and I missed out on a lot of the fun stuff you guys did. So, you know, it's it's it, it, everyone's a genius in hindsight, but no, it was a it was a nice nice run of it. We from two guys from uh, Sydney suburbs to traveling the world together and doing some pretty cool stuff. You would never have imagined it. I know it was amazing, mate. I actually look back and go, you know, everybody I've spoken to on this show, I don't think any of us retire from sport doing everything we set out to achieve. I think there's always this little bit of like, oh, like you're saying I should have maybe stayed short course a little longer. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should have gone long course a little longer. You know, like I didn't get to do anything really in the Ironman world. And I'm like, oh, maybe I could have. And and I think, you know, I'll never forget, you know, I've, I've, Running with Peter Robinson, remember the the Australian yeah, triathlete right. that had three world titles um, and two silver medal uh, titles in, in uh, Olympic distance racing, and and we were preparing for the 2004 Olympics, and we were running along, and he's like, "Oh, Greg, I wish I had your resume because you're always on the podium or or winning these World Cups." And he's like, "I've never won a World Cup." I'm like, "Robo." You've won three world championship titles, mate. Yeah. I don't have one of those. And it was just funny. Like you had two guys that were reasonably successful in the sport, but neither of us were satisfied or happy. And I almost feel like that's almost a mentality of a champion athlete. It's kind of like always wanting that little bit more, always searching for more. But It's a prerequisite, isn't it, really? It's a, yeah. yeah. I used to have guys in my camp that used to say, hey, just take a second especially as I, as I got older in my career, just take a second and look backwards for a sec. Just just absorb this because you spend your whole life achieving a goal and then looking forward to the next season and never really sort of grounding yourself around the achievements you've done. So at, at time, you, you tend to do that as we get older and we retire and you go, wow, it's, it's, uh, you, you sort of look back at it and goes, wow, it's, it's a lot quicker than it felt like. It's, a, it's like a flash in the pan and, and your career's done, but it's uh, – you, you know, you look back at it more fondly, I think, when you've got a few more kilograms on and you can look back and see what, <laughs> what the modern era are doing. You're not so obsessed with it and you, you, you sort of have a beer, open a beer or crack a wine every now and then and think, geez, that was a, an amazing race or an amazing yeah, and you, and, time in my life. And you have to almost look back and go, look, would 17-year-old Chris, Chris McCormack be, if you said to him, look, you're going to have this resume, would he take it? And hundred percent, he would. I mean, what yeah. you did in the sport is just—I don't think there'd be many professional triathletes in the world that wouldn't swap their resume for yours. I mean, it's—it's it's, uh, you know, like I said at the top of the show, it's truly remarkable. And and more so, what I'm also fascinated in, really wanted to chat with you today about is um, you, your progression beyond the sport, because one of the things I'm fascinated with is is how people can transition from from one kind of lifestyle to another. Um, you know, I, I've talk to a lot of people about the transitioning from military back to civilian life and, and athletes transitioning from being a professional athlete to somewhat of a, a, a civilian life is still kind of similar and, and it's not an easy transition. But And not to say anything you've done has been easy, but it's it's been fascinating to me as somebody that retired at a similar sort of time as you. Um, your ability to keep your passion alive and keep doing things that you know you could only dream about but you actually make your dreams happen that's really i'm fascinated by that today as well yeah i think uh well i never realized like i, I guess transitioning i is always a it's a conversation every athlete has because we're we're forever plagued by by the number around our date of birth right as, as you get older you start thinking more about what's going to happen post but i for me i i felt that i had multiple transitions in my life because i for within my household being a professional athlete and a, and a professional triathlete in that sense 
was definitely not on my family's radar because sport was never seen as a as a means to an end. My father wasn't very well educated. He, he finished school at, at 15, was driving trucks and worked in the waterfront, and he was determined that his three sons would all have tertiary educations and be working. So my oldest brother was an attorney. My younger brother's a computer engineer. I went through university as an accountant. And uh, and so I, I always used to sit there doing triathlon and doing running or more so running at university and transitioning into triathlon and uh, and seeing an opportunity to be a professional in a sport that my father just didn't grasp. Um, mm. He just didn't get it. And I... So I, I went through that college scene, as, as did yourself. I, I took a job at Bankers Trust. I was working and, and I, it was sort of when I became a professional athlete and quit and sold everything and moved overseas and, and, and went over there with an ex-girlfriend to pursue this dream, I felt that was a transition out of this life that my father and my family, had, you know, this whole school life you'd had and, and this pursuit of, of, of doing what was expected, right, not what mm-hmm. I wanted to do but what was expected of me. And then becoming, I guess, a man and an adult and making a decision of my own and owning that decision, so transitioning out of this expected life into a life that I wanted to do. And my father used to call me the golden child. I've never worked a day in my life. He used to say, you're blessed. Like no one is this lucky that they get paid to do something that they're passionate about. So I always felt during my career that I had this fallback and this, this voice in the back of my head that was my father. So I always sort of did things my way, which at times was never, not at all, always warmly received. I tend to be a bit of a loner in the sport and, and go out and, and chase things. I was, I was very obsessed with with the timeline around my professional career because my family was always telling me that. You've got 10 years in this, you better make as much as you mm. can and then what are you going to do? So I was always I was always semi-obsessed with that. And uh, and as I said earlier in the podcast talking, I, it wasn't until later in my career where I I'd achieved a certain level and I, I knew everything was going to be okay and I felt that my father accepted what I'd done as a career mm. and it was potentially the right choice and he gave me that face, I guess, to say, son, I'm proud of you, that I was able to relax and reflect that that decision to become a triathlete was a good one. It was one I owned and then I had to – I was always looking forward to what I was going to do beyond that. So I, I think that the character traits that professional athletes have and, and champions have um, are, are easily applicable in the business world and easily applicable post-career. It's just that fear tends to hold us back when we've been in one – in, in one realm for so long and uh, I think at times we, we move away when we transition out of sport, we move away from what made us very dominant within the sport we were, which which we when we move into a new realm, we don't we don't apply those same characteristics and I've said it a lot in, uh, I do a lot of talks here in Asia about this very, very topic and I've said I've, I've been relatively disappointed is probably the wrong word, but I've had so many wars and, and races with so many, so many remarkable athletes that have so many character traits that make them champions that I think if they could apply that in a different field and they had that same mindset in anything they chased because to be a professional athlete is a risk. It is it is mm-hmm. difficult. It's not guaranteed. And if they applied mm-hmm. that same mindset, they would be 100% successful. I think they're the, probably the greatest employees you could possibly employ. In fact, within all my organisations now, you have to have an athletic background for me to even consider employing you. I don't know whether that's mm. biased, but I think there's an element of, of discipline, there's an element of, of, of teamwork, there's an element of, of risk versus reward, there's an element of all these characteristics that make a champion great that I, that I think you can apply in the business world. So my transition, I, I never really found as difficult because I think I was always thinking about it in my career and I just applied the same principles I did as an athlete, being in a different realm, and with no expectation on the outcome, 
And a lot of the time it works. And if it didn't, who cares? I move on to the next thing. It's like a race. Mm. I'm going to win. Yeah. Okay, too bad. Try again. And I, I think we, we just don't do that. Athletes have this difficulty to, to do that because I think we, uh, you know, we're so successful. We're gods almost within this certain framework of our sport that it's, it's, we, we become quite precious in our, in our fear of failure when we move out of it or our fear of judgment or our fear of not being good enough. And uh, that's, mm. um, that's, uh, that, that can be difficult for many. It, it just, for me, it wasn't really that hard. I just, I'm still the same person. I just applied in a different field. Well, I think you nailed it there. I think uh, expectations and fear, I mean, they're the, they're the two big things that, that really freeze people. And like you said, I think for a lot of athletes, it's a lot of athletes get into sport, they get a few pats on the back and it's a, it's a gentle transition. They, they kind of, they, they, those pats on the back ease the fear and, and they they have expectations to some degree, but they may be not the greatest expectations. And and I think what you've learned as an athlete, you've you've got used to putting yourself out there, you know, hopping on a, the start line of helicopters flying overhead, all the pressure in the world that you're favored in the race. Um, and there is expectations from others, but you learn to manage the expectations on yourself. And when you put in those environments where they are kind of win at all cost kind of feelings but you learn to manage that yourself that's what gives you the preparedness to go out in the business world that you've been on the front lines that you've been in these circumstances where you know you you've had that incredible expectation from others but you've had to manage your own expectations and deal with the fear of of failure or or success even for some people and i think that's that's really what I think separates many good athletes from great athletes on that ability to manage those expectations. But what I want to do is is wind the clock right back and um, really want to ask you, when did you, you know, first find your passion for endurance sports? How old were you and what was the I, circumstances? Uh, yeah, I remember it vividly. I, uh, I watched the 1984 Olympics. I was a 10-year-old. Um, mm. Robert D. Costello, who is a famous Australian marathon runner, the world champion from 1983, was the favourite to win the 1984 Olympics. I don't recall any major sporting event except the America's Cup. Prior to that in my life, my first vivid memory of, of sport was this Los Angeles Olympic Games and sitting in front of our little television set at home, with my brothers and being enthralled by 16 days of, of sport. And, mm. and really, really excited about the last day and the marathon where Australia could potentially win a gold medal with our, with our hero, a man called Robert DiCostello. And, uh, and at that time I was running with my father, not very competitively, um, just running around the block. And, uh, and I remember watching that and Robert DiCostello finished fifth that day in the heat of Los Angeles. It was won by Carlos Lopez, uh, amazing event, amazing race. And I was just glued to this. And I said to my dad, I want to be a marathon runner. And, um, <laughs> and I wanted, that's me. I want to be Deke. And he couldn't win it. I want to win the marathon. And I literally bought my K2, K, remember those K226s, whatever they were? K226s. <laughs> yeah, K226s. That's right. I used to buy it with a big grip. And I literally took up running from that day. I had no idea. And I was uh, going into high school, year seven in high school. And, and I, I took up running and, in Australia, it's, we know it's a relatively small country, even though it's a big country, it's relatively small and you find your way in that running community and uh, I sort of fell into some track clubs and I was, it was something that I was so passionate about and very into and I was relatively good at and uh, took to it like a duck to water. And my whole vision was Olympic Games, marathon, 
marathon, marathon, marathon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I sort of went through my high school years as a runner. And I, I do recall me- meeting yourself and, and, and running in those days at school. And uh, triathlon was not something I ever heard of until later in, you know, in year when I was like 16, 17. I remember watching a few triathlons that were starting to come on television. Cable TV was just coming to Australia. We moved away. You know, I know there's a lot of um, Americans listening to this, but we grew up on four channels, right? It was <laughs> there was no cable. And I the simple that, days. <laughs> the simple days where you, you just you got you watch what you were told. I tell my kids about it now. You you had no choice. They made the choice for you, Packer, and you watched it. It was cricket, football, um, and yeah. and not much else. Wide world of sports, and uh, the wide world of sports used to come on and show all these events around the world. And I I recall in 19. 89 watching uh, I, was, I was sitting up to watch Bruce McAvaney used to put the athletics on television I was ready with my VHS video to record the Zurich track meet because I wanted to be a runner and mm. uh, they put this triathlon on television um, uh, Avignon well well mm. first ever ITU world championships in Avignon which was won by Mark mm-hmm. Allen Avignon France and there was a great Australian contingent in Miles Stewart none of these people I knew but Greg Welsh I knew when I say I knew, he used to run in my running club in Sydney. He was never there, but he used to come in and everyone used to say this guy was this this amazing runner. And I remember there was 30 minutes of coverage on this thing. I went, wow, what a really cool sport. I think I still might have that on a VHS video. And uh, I said, geez, I, I can swim. I live on the beach. I know how to swim. I, I ride to school every day. I have since I was a kid. I can ride. And I'm running, and this Mark Allen guy just won a world title. Like to me, world champion was, and he ran 33 minutes. I can do that. That was sort of how it all, <laughs> sort of my first. And then, literally, a few months after that, I tuned into Wild World of Sports again, and the Great Iron War was on with Mark Allen, this same guy versus Dave Scott, and Greg Welsh finished third in that race. And that was sort of for me the transition across the triathlon. I want, I want to do a triathlon. And uh, mm. I did my first duathlon in uh, my first year at university in 1991. So it was, you know, an 18-month period of thinking about triathlon and, and moving across. But, yeah, it was, I, I definitely came predominantly from a running background and swimming. You know, we Australians say we can swim, but when you come up against swimmers like a Craig Walton and, and, and these sort of athletes, when you, you realise you're a non-swimmer and uh, <laughs> have a lot of work to do. So it was just sort of by, by fluke and, and – and I think it was an alignment of just it was just an, an amazing time within Australian sporting culture and, and Australian Australian culture full stop where sport was thrust to the front. We just won the Sydney Olympic Games come 1993, 94, you know, and there was this whole momentum mm. around sport. And I was lucky enough, I think we both were, and a whole group of us to be blessed by being born in that in that era in the seventies that enabled us to be primed in in probably the most brilliant era of being a young athlete in Australia. So when did, when did you feel like, uh, you know, you found the sport, you started to do a few of them. Was there a time where you were like, hey, hang on, I, I've got some ability here. I, I've got a little bit of talent, a little bit of strength. And was there a moment that you kind of realized that? When did I, you recognize it? I think I, I, always, I, I always was really, really crappy at swimming um, and I uh, could always run. And it was a different era, like uh, as you know, remember, there was only Olympic distance racing. Juniors did Olympic distance and it was all non-drafting and it was a, a very different looking sport than the sport we see today. And um, I was lucky that the bike being non-drafting, I could ride okay and the 10K gave me time to catch up. Um, I, I think I started to realise I did Junior World Champs in 1993. It was my last year, my second to last year in college. 
and uh, I deferred a year at university to go and do this. It deferred six months, which my father was livid about, livid, livid, livid. <laughs> and it was probably at those world championships because it was the first time I'd been away for three weeks and trained with a squad, I guess, and not just gone out with the groups that existed around my area. And I finished fourth in that. And I thought, oh, wow. And I, I got took a French contract and I went and raced the rest of the season in France. And I, it was just – it wasn't that I thought I was good at it. I thought I just want to do more of this travel thing. Like, you know, I, there's a whole sport over here and I could, you can win a thousand bucks. You know, I thought you'd never work again if you won a thousand dollars. And I can just travel for a few years now when I finish college and I can go and get a job back in as, as an accountant. And, and I'm pretty good because I've just, at that time, I thought I fluked this performance at the junior worlds and I could just write off that performance and get these French contracts and go and learn another language and hang out in France and hang out with beautiful women and do these these really cool things. <laughs> and, and they're the things that motivate a 19 and 20-year-old kid. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, of no, course. No, I, I, have a, I have a similar story. Like uh, I was kind of – I think you you also worked at Sizzler, right? Yeah, I did. Yes, all the way from yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I was working at Sizzler in Australia, which was a, the restaurant chain um, – you know, that actually, I don't know if it's still around, but it was a big deal back in the early 90s. And I'll never forget working at Sizzler, making, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week, you know, working Thursday lunch and Sunday night. And then I would, uh, I went out to do this duathlon cup, the Australian duathlon cup, and I got paid $1,500 for the win. And I remember going, wow, that's like 10 weeks work at Sizzler. Yeah, I like this triathlon. That's exactly how I thought. I used to drive everywhere. You remember that race? I think you won it. It was a duathlon, the Pepsi Cup. You beat Adam Joyce. Did you win that? That was one it. In- that was it. That, that, that was, was it. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, they called it the the Australian Duathlon Cup. Yes. It was called or the Pepsi I, Cup I, or something like that. I, yeah, I think I won. I got like fifth or sixth and got like four hundred dollars. I was the same. I'm like four. Yeah. I never saw. I used to go to the old ATM machines and they'd spit out. Yeah, I never saw four hundred dollars <laughs> in my ATM ever. You know, like it was just, it was just a, a very very raw time there was no federations as you remember there was no anything you just mm. you 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 were I guess your own ceo you ran your own little world and you you, you budgeted and you you went after a race and you're like, okay it's going to cost me 80 dollars for a hotel room let's get three friends we'll split the room three ways and sleep all over the place <laughs> or sleep in sleep in the back of the car or whatever it takes yeah yeah and that yeah. was sort of the era so it was uh it was brilliant i wouldn't you know it's it's, a, it's an era that's it's like a dinosaur era to the kids of today, but it was. Uh, I wouldn't trade that for the world. It was the, the most enjoyable period of my life. I think. No, yeah. I think you know who else was in that race was um, Simon Whitfield. It was yeah, one of the first times I raced Simon. him. And Simon used to be at college. I remember mm-hmm. my university at New South Wales University. So I used to see Simon at at university all the time, and uh, mm. I, used to, I used to always think, you know, what he went on to become. But I remember thinking, oh, this is. At least there's one guy in the sport that I'm better than. That was sort of Simon <laughs> Back then, if you recall, he was not very good. He was just this magnificent runner. But you just see the evolution of a, an endurance athlete that comes with time. And he, he ended mm-hmm. up becoming probably the greatest of, uh, of that short distance racing, one off mm-hmm. without question. I, 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 I agree with you. And so moving on, when was it um, – was there a time that you were like, okay, I, I've, I've found my passion. I'm loving it. I'm loving the travel. I'm loving – you know, a bit of money and, and some of the French girls and, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm loving the sport. I'm loving watching it. I, I've, I've got some ability here. I just got fourth at World Junior Champs. And, and was there a time where you're like, right, okay, 
let's start really taking control and, and you know, really becoming responsible for my life now? Was there a, a moment yeah. or did that come steadily? It sort of, I, I, so basically I came back in 93 from Junior Worlds. My father blew his stack. Um, I finished university in 95. I took a job at Bankers Trust and, um, and by chance I qualified for, um, and, and I was sort of, I resignated at that point that, look, this whole dream of being a, a professional athlete overseas is not going to happen. I'm going to be this banker, not even a banker, a, a, a funds advisor at, at, at Bankers Trust in a Chifley Tower in the city. And I, I hated it every minute of it. And I, I recall mm. Galaxy, I got Galaxy TV because I now had a job. And I remember watching, now I'll never forget it, the Drummondville Triathlon. And Craig Walton was a junior I used to race with. And it was on Galaxy and we'd never seen triathlon on television. And Brad Bevan won it from Hamish Carter and Craig Walton. And it was. Mm-hmm. I was in guys, that race. I was in that, that. race. And <laughs> I, yes, and I'm watching all this stuff in Australia, and I knew because I've been racing you guys at these duathlons, and and I'm like, mm-hmm. there's Craig Walton. I'm, I'm I'm a year and a half older than him, and he's a there's Greg Bennett, and I um, and I was yeah, I was sitting there, oh, man, and I, I I just had this feeling that my life should be over there, and instead I'm stuck here, and and I I by chance it was sort of a. Again, a fluke. I probably would never have had the courage to do it myself, but I qualified for the Surf Lifesaving World Championships in South Africa in 1996. And I, um, and I took the opportunity to go and represent my surf club, which in Australia, surf clubs are, you know, big clubs exist on the beach that are lifesavers, they're, they're lifeguards. And I've been in the surf club mm-hmm. my whole life. And I went over to represent them in South Africa. And because of that, they paid for my ticket. So I got this round-the-world ticket that they paid for. And I thought, well, here's my chance. I've got a bit of money saved up. I've got this round-the-world ticket. I was dating a girl at the time, Melanie, and I said, why don't you come with me? She was working with us um, at BT. And um, I was like, let's, let's head off overseas. So we went to South Africa and had this great time, did this thing. And then I landed in, in, in France and uh, I just sort of expected I never, never really put much thought into what happens when you get there? You just want to be a professional and go over there. You land in Paris and then you're like, okay, I've got to do this myself. There was no national training centres. or So we just caught a, a train. We started training in a little town called Gap. I only knew one race in France that I'd done in 93 in Ombran. So Gap is the town that lives mm-hmm. just outside of, of Ombran. And I stayed there and we lived there and I just trained. We rented this little tiny place out the back of a person's house. And I trained and trained and trained there and I and, – Fortunately for me, all you guys were superstars and, and the World Championships that year were in Cleveland in the United States of America. So most of the Australian team was in America, in the US. I wasn't privy to any of that. And by chance, because of that, I saw this really – I had no idea how this World Cup stuff worked, but I saw this ITU World Cup race in Paris and I, I contacted the guy. I had a French guy contact him and said, can I do the race? And I, I had to ask my federation. So the Federation says, yes, you can do it because you can do it because there's no other Australians there. So it was all the second-tier Australians, of which it was myself, I think, Eamon Nunn and uh, a whole bunch of guys were living. Jason Meadows were all living in, in Europe. Luckily for me, Greg, the Federation said, said yes, I could, uh, I could have that start in Paris. And I, uh, I jumped at the opportunity and I was only gifted it because all the guys, as I said, were, were over in the, in the States preparing for Cleveland Worlds. And uh, I had this magnificent race in Paris. I ended up going up there, having this fantastic race, and I finished uh, sixth in the event. I won $2,000. At that point, to give some perspective, I travelled overseas with $2,000. So I just – I thought I'd never work again. I I, I was just (laughs) ecstatic. 
and uh, and I was approached after the race by a gentleman called Les McDonald, who was the first, um, I guess, what do you call him, uh, prime minister of the president, president of the president, ITU. President of yeah, the ITU. Yeah, yeah. Of the ITU. At the time, I didn't know who he was, and he asked me who I was. Um, who's this young kid? There was a Paul Amy, another young Kiwi guy, and with these young new generation of kids. And I said, "Oh, look, I'm Chris McCormack. I I come from Australia." I saw this race. My federation gave me the opportunity to race in it. Um, I'm just ecstatic. He said, yeah, I saw that. You, were, you had this big celebration. I said, oh, look, I've just won $2,000. You know, I'm rich. And he said, would you be interested in coming across next week and racing in Drummondville? And now Drummondville was the race I'd watched you guys competing in the year prior on in Galaxy Television. I said, oh, look, that's in Canada. You know, I've got to speak to my federation. They won't let me do that. And he's like, look, I'm – I'm Les McDonald. I'm the president of the ITU. I'll give you a wild card. I'll give you a wild card. I said, me? He said, yeah, yeah, you've won $2,000. Why don't I take some of the money out? We're sponsored by Lufthansa. Are you interested in coming to Drummondville? I'll get you a homestay. And I looked at my girlfriend at the time. I said, I've never been to Canada. Let's do it. And I literally literally flew out of Paris and uh, landed in Drummondville. I was so excited and and, uh, stayed in a homestay, a Pierre and Debbie, who are still to this day friends of mine, um, and did this event in Drummondville, of which all you guys came up, and it was just it was just all these idols of mine, Miles Stewart, and everybody was there, and uh, and by chance I I just had this amazing swim. I got out with the front group and and rode on the bike with a, a breakaway, and, and I remember getting off onto the run. And I started running and I was wearing the only tri suit, the only racing suit I ever had, which was a suit from the Australian Grand Prix series in Australia. And um, so I'm racing in, in this my second ever World Cup and uh, in this funny looking suit that had all these sponsors on it. None of them were mine. Um, <laughs> and, and so it probably looked fantastic to the people watching, but none of them, Ford and all these ones, were none of them were actually paying me anything. And um yeah, and I, I remember the TV camera, and it was the first time in my life, even though we'd done this racing in Australia, that I'd had a TV camera directly in front of me. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, no matter what happens, at least I'm on television and maybe all my friends back home in Australia are watching Galaxy TV right now and they're going to see me and I'm leading a World Cup and all the good guys are going to catch me any minute now, but at least I led. And I'm running and I'm running and I went, there was a two-lap run and I remember going through 5K on the run. And I looked up at the big screen as we came through the, the, the big stadium section there, the, the street stadium they had, and I saw I had a 40-second lead on, the, on, on two athletes, uh, I think, uh, what was his name, Stefan Vukovic and uh, mm. a Canadian, I think, from memory. I remember 40 seconds. I started doing the math in my head going, 40 seconds, if I, I could potentially win this. And it was only at that point with 5K to go that I realised I could potentially win probably the biggest race of my career and my second attempt at a, at a World Cup. It was the biggest race in my career and I ultimately went on to win this World Cup race and uh, won $10,000. I was this little punk kid from Australia. I'd made a, I, had I stayed at Bankers Trust, I was making $15,000 a year. So to win $10,000 was a year's pay as a, as a first-year accountant. So it was uh, life-changing and that was when I actually realised at that point that I had potential talent because of uh, – I've outrun the best guys in the, in, in the sport. I just never believed I could, and I've never been in the position mm. to do it. And that was sort of that that catalyst, that point where I thought, oh, I'm half a shot here. I qualified for Cleveland uh, Worlds, of which you were in, and a big Aussie team. I got absolutely obliterated in Cleveland. 
but it was a it was a chance. By chance, I was there in in, in Drummondville. I, that chance gave me the opportunity to do Cleveland and meet all you guys and be part of this Australian system. And and by chance, I bonded on that Australian team with Miles Stewart, who sat me down um, just after Cleveland and said, "Look, kid, you got to." What was his exact words? He said, "You've got no idea, and you're better for it." If you can have some, Miles had, amazing, <laughs> yeah, Miles had an amazing way of words, but he said, "You've got no idea, and you're better for it." If I could give you some idea, you could you could be a, a real champion. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you hear that from a legend, Miles Stewart was the world champion in 1991, like a legend, as you know. I was like, "Oh, mate, anything you say, do tell me to do. I'm in." And he he convinced me to fly home and move to the Gold Coast and train under the tutelage of his father, and and that was at that point my entire life changed. So what year was that? What what year was that? How old were you? 1996. I was uh, just turned 23 years of age. Yeah, mm. just, yeah. So so, th- so there was some so some real. I mean, you obviously got some. Uh, the one thing I know about you is you've got tremendous drive. Like you you you're you're very determined. You have a real drive, and I I think that's a big difference maker between a lot of champions. I don't think you had. Um, I don't think you were – I often say there's born winners and there's people that have to learn how to win. I, I look at Miles Stewart, who you just mentioned, as a born winner. You know, He won the world championships at 18 yeah. years of age. He had that confidence and that strut about him that – I don't know that you were that guy. I feel like you were maybe a bit more like me where it took a few pats on the back to get that confidence and, and build that, that winning attitude yeah. over time, and, and I think you had to learn how to win. But I think um, – like that Drummondville race, it was kind of like, oh, maybe I am okay at this, you yeah, know. And, yeah. and what's incredible about your story, and you've kind of finished it here in, in that sort of '96 window, is is the incredible year you had in '97. Yeah, that was 100. I, I think like, to tap on you, what you said, 100 percent right. I think I was. Um, I think all athletes, and we talked about this earlier in the podcast. I think all athletes know their own insecurities and own fears and their own, I guess, their own deficiencies as an athlete. And I, I thought, uh, still up until 2012, I was highly deficient as a triathlete. Compared, like, you'd see all these amazing, talented athletes you'd train with, and you just think, "Oh man, like he's so much better than me." Like, how am I? How am I bluffing this? That was literally my 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 career. Like, oh, there's, you know, I remember Courtney Atkinson coming out. Oh, I'm dead. I mean, like I'd see Simon Whitford. I'm dead. Or Paul Amy or Simon. Le- like everybody. And 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 so I just always felt. I guess I had severe imposter syndrome as I just never felt adequate I guess to be good and I, I guess yeah I, I had to work myself up with this paranoia that that that, that enabled me to get that drive to win and you're a hundred percent right and I, I think that paranoia I learned because still at this younger age I was very raw and I guess that 97 season for me was a catalyst of moving into my first ever squad and under the tutelage of a coach, I'd never had a coach that basically just said, "Do this, don't think." In fact, thinking is the worst thing you can do. Just do what you're told and replicate day in day out. So I moved to the Gold mm-hmm. Coast with Miles Stewart, an amazing squad of champions he had there, and you just sort of refine your skills. And, and suddenly you're in you're in a training environment. You're training with Miles, who in 1996 was the World Cup winner, world number one. Um, and you, you're matching him in everything he does. So you start to build this level of confidence. And, and, and that culture within those squads, there was the Brett Sutton squad, of which you were a, a member of, that was dynamite. And there was this Colt Stewart squad. And at that time in the global triathlon, and that was two Australian-based squads, 
But that was the pinnacle of the sport. Like that, that the mm. best of the best were in one of those squads. And luckily for me, I sort of was this young talent that came through and I landed in this squad and suddenly I'm going head-to-head with Miles Stewart in training sessions and I'm thinking to myself, well, if this guy's the best in the world, um, I'm outrunning him in a couple of these sets. Yeah, he's out for me, but only by a little bit. So you start to just like pure common sense think, okay, I'm, I'm in the hunt here. And, and, and that's, that culture of excellence and that culture of success feeds off each other and I, I thrived in that environment. And I, mm. I, I just literally came out of that squad within three months. I was Australian sprint champion. I was, I was winning all the national series races back then we had in Australia. And I, I marched into the Formula One series in Australia. I suddenly in Manly, I had this breakthrough race where I'm running with Brad Bevan and, and, and Miles Stewart and beating Greg Welsh and I'm right in the hunt. And that was a, a, a complete turnaround as an athlete. And I, um, mm. and I attributed it all to that, to that squad. And I, um, I bounced out of that season and I literally came onto the World Cup circuit after having a, probably my best ever national season, um, finishing second at the Australian Championships to Brad Bevan that year um, and uh, in coming into 97. Was it 97? Yeah. And then I, mm-hmm. uh, we had the World Cup in um, Ishigaki and Ishigaki, which I won. So it was the beginning mm. of the Olympic qualification period, the first time triathlon's ever going to make the Olympics, the first ever Olympic points to be scored, and I've won this opening round of the World Cup and was world number one all within the space of six months. It was just an unbelievable turnaround, and, and, and I say it to Miles to this day, it was the most enjoyable training period of my life from a learning perspective, from a, from a culture perspective, and uh, and I thrived in it, and I I ultimately moved away from that group primarily because I, you know, there was a bit of a clash. There was one coach, the father of probably Miles, who was who, and I, I think I progressed too quickly, and I opted to move out and and do my own thing out of out of Europe, and uh, and just, but I carried that momentum through that 1997 season and and held on to the world number one ranking that whole year, and the world championships at the end of the year were in Perth, Australia. It was a bit of a roller coaster year. I had a breakup with a girlfriend. It was towards the middle of the season, and I had a, a fantastic club coach, a geek guy called Guy Emelin, who worked with me all the way through my Ironman career, um, and he really helped support me through this really rough patch I had in the middle. I sort of left the national team because I felt a little bit isolated because of a girls will do this to you, and um, <laughs> and, and he he sort of yeah he sort of rebuilt me, sent me home. I worked with the squad back in Australia, back back in Sydney, moved in with my parents and, and prepared for world championships. And I was that determined, as you said earlier, to number one, hold on to the world number one ranking. And I was that determined to, to win a world championship just to, to stick, it sounds horrible, but to stick it up everyone, right, basically because of the back end of my season had been a bit rough and I had a, had a wobbly patch in the middle and, and no one sort of, I, I knew what it was attributed to, but no one really gave me the. Everyone just thought I was, I was, I was done. I had this seven months of glory, and now back to the, back to being fodder. You know, you just. Mm. Fodder. And I guess your own insecurity as an athlete drives you, and that's what really, really drove that back into my season and that and that pursuit of a world title. Well, I think that ninety six, ninety seven for both of you, you and I, it was kind of a period where it really was a transition couple of years. Um, like you mentioned, there was the Australian Formula One or the Australian Grand Prix series that was going on that was just head to head racing, you know, five to seven times in a summer. And these were really short course events that were live television. And there was this real 
energy about the sport in Australia and then the World Cup series was coming alive because now we were in the Olympics and it was like the qualifying and so everything started to become a little bit more professional and more serious amongst all our athletes getting ready for the Olympics and and it was that time, you know, I won my first World Cup in 97 in uh, Monte Carlo. And I think you were, you, you had a sprint finish with Dimitri Gag for yeah. second and third. And and you were winning Ishigaki. And I think I was in Ishigaki that year. I don't, I don't know where I finished, but I remember seeing you, you know, I think you were running with Miles Stewart and you ended up outrunning him in Ishigaki. And, yeah. and then that year you had, and just so everybody understands, back then uh, the World Championships was a one-day event and then we had a World Cup series and yeah. and both were of equal importance and it's a bit like if you watch anybody at what's mountain biking um the mountain bike series has a world cup series and they also have a world championship one day event both are equally important i think it was a better but very that's a better system in my opinion on the record oh, it's a much better system much it's better. a much better system and uh but very few had been able to do the win both in the one year because it one it requires a consistent year and then it also requires peaking which i believe perth was almost like november last, or december last, like, yeah it was a, it was, it was a, 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 11th of november yeah so it's a really long yeah. season when you consider ishigaki was always around easter in um and and you'd been racing in australia in the grand prix so it's a very long season and so to win the both the world series and the world championships that year because, it, you know, it's, diff it's different when there's a world championship in Europe, you know, it tends to be August, September. An Australian world championship or a New Zealand world championship are always that November, December. And that makes it very difficult when you've been pushing hard all year. And then the emotional roller coaster that you had, you know, with your relationships and things like that, that made 97 a truly extraordinary year. And to put it in context, that 97 World Championship field with the great Simon Lessing, Brad Bevan, Greg Walsh, it was a stacked, loaded, incredible field that you had to outrun. And, you know, I think when you look back at your life now and, and reflect on that sort of 97 year, I know I do. When I look at your career, sure, you won Kona a couple of times, and but that 97 year is a short course specialist and you know you and I often roomed at a lot of these races yeah. um, in the late 90s and and um I, I just want to touch on I think one of the funniest things you've said is you know that you you had a severe imposter syndrome and <laughs> and, and I love that because I think it's kind of like this wanting to belong at the the best of the world and always feeling like, well, I'm kind of there, but should I be here? Like yeah. this constant questioning and you wanted to cement yourself as one of the best in the world and you didn't feel like you were. But how did that feel like at the end of 97? Did you feel a bit more cemented and less of an imposter? Uh, uh, funny, I felt like more of an imposter. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you don't think you're worthy enough to be called the world champion. Do you, mm. you know because you, you you look back and you're reflective of Simon Lessing, what a world champ of, of Mark Allen, of of Greg Welsh and Miles Short, these monsters, you know Spencer Smith, monsters of the sport, monsters. Um, mm. And here's this kid who had the race of his life. Yeah, I, I had an amazing season, but really it was an 18 month period, and 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 I've had this incredible season, as you said, and and I was so determined. To win that event for so many reasons, it was my mother was there, my father was the it was a, the ability for me to show my parents that this decision to become a professional was a worthy one, and and there was just so much on the line for me and to succeed, and then for my whole life to change. You know, here's this mm. here's an Australian world champion in a sport that's going to open the Olympic Games three two two and a half years before the Olympic Games. I'm a superman, mm. right? Certainly, I've got 
you know, where I was riding, I'm like, you want to pay me to ride that bike? No problems, pal. You know, and I, I just, I was sitting there thinking, oh, mate, what, what, what's Greg? He's uh, actually a, a true story. When I, when I crossed the line that day, so I was first, Hamish Carter was second, third place mm. was Simon Lessing, fourth was the great Brad Bevan. My, mm. I think both of us, our sporting idol, Brad Bevan was three mm. times second in the world championships. Everybody in, in triathlon Australia knew that. He was, in my opinion, our greatest of that era, a racer. Mm. And I was lying on the massage bed in the tent literally 15 minutes after the race and Brad was on the bed next to me, shook my hand and laid down. And I was looking at him talking about, about the race and I said to him, Brad, I, I'm so sorry. Like, and he looked at me and I said, no, I'm just so sorry. He's like, Chris, never apologise for winning a world championship, ever. <laughs> right? I'm like, oh. But that's what I mean about an imposter syndrome. Like I, I, I felt like I wasn't worthy <laughs> of the title. This man who's still my idol, who was, still if I went home to my parents' house, his picture is still on my wall, is lying <laughs> next to me and I've robbed him of this title and, and that's how I felt. So I, I think that that following year was tough and difficult and, and I, yeah, I just felt like a more of an imposter because I just felt like I wasn't worthy of this championship. I wasn't, I wasn't the best in the world. I was bet you know, even though it said I was, I, I just felt Simon Lessing, okay, he didn't win. He had a mm. – maybe he wasn't at his best that day and he probably wasn't. And, and, you know, I felt everybody was thinking that. I was thinking that. It's, it's, as I said, it, we, we know our own deficiencies so much and instead of, instead of like you said, a Miles Stewart would go, yes, I am the king, I was more insular even though I portrayed this, yeah, and it became more and more of my character later because I realised – as an athlete, it's our own insecurities that rob us of, of our destiny. So mm-hmm. I, at that point, I was too immature of an, as an athlete and as a man, I guess, to to really focus and look at what I'd done and, and, and understand it, break it down and build from it. I was more shamed that I was calling myself a world champion, semi-embarrassed when you had so many stars and, and, and the following week I could, be, I could lose to any of them. A world champion, in my opinion, should never lose, right? So it was <laughs> a... It was a difficult period. Well, I won't lie. It was my most crowning moment. And I look back at my career, as you said, it is. It sits above those Konas. It sits above everything for me mm. because it's. It was a, an amazing time in Australian racing. It was an amazing time in the world of triathlon, and the the monsters within that race. The monsters, I say, that the 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 men I looked up to as a as a young athlete, and it was my transition into becoming a man as an athlete. I guess were all in that race and I was able to execute on a day, which I think is important, and, and do it in front of under a lot of pressure and wanting and pursuing something, wanting it and going after it. And I look back now and I can I truly appreciate it. And I wish I had done that post the event. I just didn't have the people around me or or the capacity to to or the team, I guess, to to sit me down and, and, and walk through it. I just yeah, yes, well, that's the thing. I mean, you you young, you, you were very young, and you won very a big race very early in your career, and and so yes, you were dealing with some of those insecurities. And, and it's funny you mentioned all those names, you know, Hamish Carter, Brad Bevan, Simon Lessing. Um, I think you I were, was fifth. You were fifth. And, and Greg Greg yeah. Greg Welsh was sixth. Um, yeah. I mean, it was it was really a, an incredible race, and Simon, and Simon, then sort of moving. That was a sort of Simon yeah. top ten. It was yeah, Whitfield got top 10. Um, yeah. It was really a tremendous, like, here I am, you know, and I'd been racing you well and truly for probably a, a year or two previous and I, I knew your abilities, but I, I think that, you know, was truly a remarkable day in the sense that it was literally like, 
here I am, and I can understand those insecurities. I, one of the talks that I, I give um, is a talk about learning how to win. And again, I mentioned Miles Stewart, born winner, and I had to learn how to win. And I, I went through my career and even you know won the World Series in 02 and 03, got fourth at the, the Athens Olympics, but I still wasn't winning a lot. You know, I was able to win the World Series with a lot of podiums and the occasional wins, but I wasn't a winner. And it really took me until about 06 until I still started to get that empowerment that I that confidence that comes with winning the strut the the uh, the visualizing and the affirmations became uh, central to to what I wanted to achieve and my confidence grew through the work I was doing and I changed that winning rate of about ten percent to around fifty to sixty percent from sort of oh six to twenty eleven and it was that uh for me it was you know I, I had to I was a slow maturer like you said you were immature i I almost feel like I was a slow maturer and I had to get used to the fact that I, I can do this and I should be one of the guys. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, it's, uh, you mentioned you didn't have the team around you and that's sort of what I want to sort of talk about a little bit as we go on here as well and the importance of that team for empowering you to become your best self. Um, you know, and I know with you, I just want to keep touching as we, we go through your timeline a little bit here because it is a great story um, and you and I s- – share very similar stories to some yeah. degree. Um, and we both went into that sort of 98, 99 as two of the sort of guys. So if we weren't winning World Cups, we were on the podium. We might have had a few off days, but generally speaking, we were fairly consistent. Going into the Olympic trials, you and I, I think you were ranked number one in the world. I was number two in the world. Um, and, and, and we were going into those trials going, okay, it's the Chris McCormack, Greg Bennett, Miles Stewart show. With Brad Bevan had started to fade off a little bit. Greg Welsh had had a bit of a heart condition, but that was the team. I mean, that was the the great team going into the 2000 Olympics, a, a home Olympics in in Sydney for you and I. Um, I'd won on the the Sydney uh, race the year before. You'd been so consistent on it, and, and and like I said, you were number one in the world. I was number two, and here we go into the trials. So take us through through that because that was a, an incredible moment for both you and I in our lives. Yeah, I remember it like vividly. I, I think my takeaway from the trials now or quite reflectively, uh, I, I think, again, an immature response even though I was a little bit older, I, I always thought that, and, and it's not Triathlon Australia's fault, it was our first time in the Olympic Games, but I always thought the, the best would go, right? The, yeah, you, know, you, you know, you've got these trials and you've got everything, but common sense will prevail, and mm-hmm. they will pick the strongest team. And, I, and I, I, I'd already, in my head, I, I'd picked the team in my head that was Greg Bennett, Chris McCoy, and Miles Stewart. That was the Olympic team, um, probably stupidly. And, um, but I, I was convinced that was the team. And, uh, and we had that clause, and obviously Peter Robinson, it's history now, Peter Robinson won in, in Sydney and he got an automatic selection. He threw himself, threw a spanner in the works. Um, the next event was the tragic event in Perth where the course was short and the women did mm. 7K and the man was a disaster. And um, and uh, and Craig Walton, I think, finished third. And so he suddenly threw himself up the list. And um, mm. and there was this disadvantage clause, if you recall, and that was a clause that was put into, into basically, I think, benefit yourself, myself, and Miles, some degree, and I, I never read. I'll be honest with you, Greg. I, I never read the Olympic qualification. I, I just mm-hmm. thought the best would go, and and I recall Miles Stewart, who was worthy of his spot. Uh, and I've told him this to his face. So I'm not saying anything. 
I said he was a coward during that period and I uh, and he might have been sick and he could have done all that maybe he didn't, I don't, I don't know, but he dived in the water and he exercised disadvantage in Sydney. Now, the disadvantage clause, for those who don't know, the way it was written was that if you had a, a, a disadvantage in the, in the race, a crash, a flat tyre or something that that didn't allow you to perform the way you would normally perform, you applied for disadvantage. And how it affected people like you and me and everybody else was in the race, they could then they would look at that athlete's performances in world championships only, right, and compare that to the performance of Greg Bennett and Chris McCormack and Chris Hill and everyone else. Well, Miles Stewart had won a world championship in 1991. So mm. they go and, and finished third in 99 and 98. So they go, okay, Chris McCormack's finished 11th in this race. Miles Stewart, however, first versus 11th, Miles gets the nod over that race. So he basically nullified the performances of other athletes. He went to Perth and did the same thing, and it basically put him in the team, right? Mm-hmm. Had I gone to Perth, and Pete Coulson told me this, who at the time was assisting me a lot in, he said, Chris, you need to dive in the water here in Perth and you need to pull out and you apply for disadvantage, you're, you've been ill. Had I done that, I would have been a Sydney Olympian. My father mm. said to me, if you do that, I'll never talk to you again. You, mm. put, your, you put your best foot forward, kid, and destiny will work out what's, what's worthy of you. And, mm. and I did, and I got, I got obliterated in Perth. I was third Australian and I was left off the team. And, mm. and I, I could deal with it because I'd had this conversation with my father. I thought it was cowardly how other people got in, but that's how they opted to get in, right? And I, and I didn't begrudge Peter Robinson. He earned his spot fair and square. And I didn't begrudge Craig Walton. I felt he earned his spot fair and square. I did at the time have a little bit of a, eh, about Miles. I thought it was cowardly, and I've, I've since told him. Um, but I was able to move on. I was like, okay, best foot forward, done. I'm moving to the States. I'm done with it. Right, like mm-hmm. it's it's done, and I and it was it was a difficult period because I just always see myself in the Olympics. I just always mm-hmm. and 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 I just met a young girl who is now my wife, and uh, and she was sitting there looking at. It and I'm like, ah, oh, what am I going to do now? Forget it. And I had still had a couple of years of sponsorships because I was world champion, favorite to win the Olympics. I was thinking everybody's going to dump me anyway. Um, now I've got no, now I haven't made the Olympics, so I figured I'd just follow McKeeley Jones who had made the Olympic team and Pete Coulson who I'd been working with to the States and start going back and racing these events and, and, and just becoming, I guess, a professional. Instead of being focused on Olympic Games, let's go and, and, and dictate my own future and, and see what happens, right? And then I'll look mm. at Athens in the future. And that, that was sort of how I mentally got myself through that period. Was I disappointed? Bitterly disappointed. Bitterly. Um, you know, I don't blame anybody. I don't I – don't, uh, you know, I, I, I took that anger, I guess, and it was – I often said and I wrote a book about it and I've often said and I've been quite reflective on it that that anger – I guess it was a bit of anger at myself. It was a bit of anger at the system. It was a bit of anger of, I guess, the whole process. But millions of people have an Olympic anger story, right? So I'm not, I'm not mm. the only person here. So I was mm. – and I, I guess I realised at that point that if I could funnel that, and take that chip, that, that was sort of the missing, that became my, my shield, that became the missing link in my in my racing arsenal. And I needed a chip on my shoulder, I needed anger, I needed I needed to realise these people, that my peers, they're not my friends. Like they're my mm. friends, I guess they are my friends. But they will bend the rules to suit themselves. They won't be honourable, they won't be, you know what I mean? It was sort of how I viewed it and how I broke it down. And because of that, hate is good for me. 
And if I don't like them anymore and I don't like them, I want to get them, I want to smash them and then just continually bury their head in the sand. That's the attitude I took into my racing. And that was sort of this whole period of racing for me into the States that became, I think 2001 was my best ever season, even racing on the ITU circuit. I just dominated. I was riding the house down. I was, I just, and I just hated everybody. I didn't want anything to do with anybody. And I did it my way. And I hated the, the triathlon federation. And, and, and it was sort of that, that was, became, as I said, it, people who lived that era and you probably didn't would probably say this guy's off his head not this mac is an idiot but it became my alter ego to some degree and and it was a pivotal pivotal character within my career that enabled me to become i guess come out the other side and become an ironman athlete and mm. uh, and have the arsenal to to be successful at a distance i should never have been successful at but it was that, that chip that gave me that that olympic disappointment that chip that built that sort of filled those holes of self-doubt or gave me the alter ego that enabled me to deal with self-doubt a lot better. Like what you've heard so far? Then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now. This show is only made possible by you, the listener, and if you'd like to support Greg, please visit the Be With Champions Patreon page. Your support, very much appreciated. Now, back to the show. You and I both went through very similar feelings and um, emotions, and and when we look back at our career, I think it's it's you look at two thousand and you go, oh, it would have been, you know, that that was a moment in both our lives where we would have loved to have been a part of and all sorts of things. But we also have got to look on it as go, wow, it was one of the most the best things that almost happened to us. Um, yeah. You know, personally for me. Uh, you know, I took, you know, Triathlon Australia to court and it was the only time I got the front page of the Australian newspapers rather than the back page in the sporting section. It was I was on the front page suing, you know, trying to trying to win this court battle and um, this, like you said, the disadvantage cause there was just no way to beat it. But, you know, it was one of those times I remember young Simon Whitfield, you know, he was 24 at the time. So, Greg, why don't you come over to Canada and, you know, train here and I'm getting ready for the Olympics, you know, because the Canadian team was pretty much a walk-on start for him. And, and so I was like, fine, I'll go over. And I, I was so like, do I retire? What do I do? Should I keep doing the sport? I was, I was so bewildered, you know, and I remember you and I was talking about it with all the interviews we had post Olympics and we said, yeah, you have to use the word bewildered in every time you do an interview. Remember we said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you remember that, but we were both bewildered, bewildered. And so that word became our, <laughs> our go-to word for every interview. But I remember, you know, I moved to Canada and started training with Simon, who was a good mate of mine, and um, and that's where I met my wife. And you know that meeting Laura, and I always say I didn't get the Olympics, but I got the girl. You know, and yeah, it, yeah, that was yeah. a, and, and I wouldn't have met Laura had I gone to the Olympics. I and I, I probably wouldn't have had one of my career highlights was actually standing at the Olympics as the reserve for the Australian team waving a little as a Canadian flag as one of my very closest mates came down, won the gold medal. And when he got the gold medal, he jumped off the, the podium, ran over to me in the stands and put it around my neck and said, this is yours. And that for me, that transition along with meeting with Laura was like, you know what, that was the healing process I needed to yeah. then sort of go go forward and, and, and move on with it. That doesn't mean I've I'm completely healed. Like you, I I, I look back and there was definitely a, an anger in me. There was definitely like, okay, if you guys are gonna, I'm gonna take full control of my life. You know, this 
I, I'm going to go smash what I need to go do. And, yeah. you know, you came to the States, became more professional. And I'll, I'll remember that like 01, 02, 03, 04. I, think, I don't know how many times you won the Escape from Alcatraz race, but there was a real domination of Chris McCormack in, in America and the racing you did. I tended to stay towards the, the ITU and, uh, and, and give the Olympics one more crack. And as it happens, I did get to go to Athens, but it wasn't the same as, you know, having a hometown Sydney Olympics and and that's where our careers kind of did did sort of separate a little bit but yeah, um but but I think when you look at that time in 2000 as the the trigger for both of us and and you you know this for you I you'd shown talent in in 97 98 99 you'd shown that Chris McCormack is a, is an incredible athlete and worthy of a world champion during those years but then you went on to you know, post Olympics and and keep dominating. You then went to Ironman, and like you said, that wasn't your natural talent. I'll never forget. You said your longest run. We used to train a little bit in San Diego when I'd come visit, and you were like, "Yeah, an hour was my longest run, or forty five minutes to fifty minutes was your longest run." Yeah. All of a sudden, here you're going, "Okay, I'm going to go to Ironman." And it wasn't like you went to Ironman and performed poorly. You basically turned up and uh, did you win your first yeah, Ironman I won, race? I, I, I won my first Ironman I did. I did one half in Wildflower and I won it and broke the course mm. record. And it was a funny, it was a chance meeting after the Olympics. So it was two, I, 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 I say it honestly now, I went to Ironman way too early. I wish I never did. I was, mm. uh, and I had a, a meeting after the Ironman. Bill Daverin um, had taken over the Australian system um going into athens and he mm. caught I, had, I just won the goodwill game 2001 i had this dynamite season i crashed at the worlds which i thought i would have won and i ended up winning this goodwill games in brisbane and i finished the year number two in the world i, I should have done the last race and, and won the world cup series but i didn't i opted out of it because i went back to the states and um and i'd won a couple of world cups that year and i bill davin reached out to me and bill davin was a new national coach or the high performance director and he sat down with me in, in, uh, in, on the Gold Coast. I flew back to the Gold Coast and he said, look, we want you to come back in this, into the system, into the program. And uh, it was November of 2001. You come back into the program and let's prepare you for Commonwealth Games next year and then Athens. I said, look, Bill, I'll be honest with you, mate. I'm not going for this whole rigmarole of it. You either put me in the Athens team. Mate, that Athens course is me to a T. Put me in that team now or I'm out. And he, he, his exact words to me were, Chris, what else are you going to do? You've got to come back. I know you want to go to the Olympics. There's nothing else you do. What, are you going to win 10 more San Diego triathlons and Chicago's? And they're, they're worthless for, you, for a career. I know you need this. What are you going to do, Iron Man? Because like you, he's like, you You can't do Iron Man. You're hopeless. <laughs> right? That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, and I literally left that. He put it in my head. I literally, again, anger, stupidity, <laughs> chip on my shoulder. I went into Ironman Australia, which was in April of the following year. So five months later, I, I entered Ironman Australia. And uh, and I remember vividly Bill Daverin was high-performance director coaching Jason Shortis. Um, he was, he'd was worked with Craig Walton, who opted, that was his second Ironman. He was an Olympian. And he had all these athletes. Back then, there was no 70.3 series. You either did Ironman, of which there was nine in the world. So most Ironmans back then were stacked. That year, I had Peter Reid, Tim DeBoom, who had been 1-2 in Kona. I had Jürgen mm-hmm. Zach, I had um, Olivia Bernard, Craig Watts, everybody, everybody, Chris mm-hmm. Lee, everybody was in this Ironman. I've never done – I've done a few runs over two hours and me and Waldo just belted them on the swim and bike and we had a – I think I had like a 
Wilder had a 13-minute lead off the bike. I was three minutes behind him. I caught Wilder on the run. And I, I remember sailing through halfway going, Mate, this is the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. What a joke. Here's the, here's the world champion. He's, he's pulled out because he's so far behind in Peter Reed. I'm like, this is, I'm going to come and win this Kona thing. Literally, I blew to pieces in the second half of the run and I literally just hung on to win. But I vividly recall coming down the straight, I was walking, but I held on to, and I saw Bill Davron and I, put, I did this pistol shot at him. He said, should have put me in the Olympics, pal. And I came through and I said, I'm going to win Kona. And that was this arrogance I took into Kona because I, like I said, I'd done Wildflower, won it. I'd done one Ironman, I've just beaten the world champion by minutes, won it. And now I'm doing Kona in 2002. And, and ironically, after that event, or it was actually just prior, I, I got a call from a journalist in Australia called Amanda Lullum. And because of my season in 2001 where I was world number one, the Commonwealth Games selection was was up for grabs. And uh, she said, oh, Chris, because of your ranking, they had some ranking thing, if you can keep, um, I think, Courtney Atkinson off the podium, you're going to get selected for the Commonwealth Games. I said, what? She's like, oh, have you not read the policy? I said, no, I'm not, not even interested in the Commonwealth Games. She's like, well, you know, if you go to Geelong and you, you – and Courtney doesn't finish top three, you're in the team. I said, is that right? So I got the opportunity to ring Bill Daverin. I picked up the phone and Bill, I said, could you explain to me the Commonwealth Games qualification? I'd just done Ironman Australia and won it. And uh, he said, oh, you have to, yeah, yeah, he told me. And I said, well, if what happens if I go down there and I ride for Hamish Carter and all the New Zealanders and I ride against Australia in this selection race and none of them got on the top three, I'm, I'm in the team. He said, why would you do that? I said, because I can and so I went down to Geelong and I raced for Paul Amy, Shane Reed, all of these Kiwis, and I literally rode them off and, and Courtney didn't get in the top three. He finished fifth and I booked my ticket to the Commonwealth Games in Manchester <laughs> and I didn't care. And it was for me, that was just revenge is best served sweet, cold sometimes. And for me, that opportunity, just the, the sheer anger of Triathlon Australia was my closing of that Olympic book for me. I was like, gotcha, mm. and I sat there getting my measurements. I'm like, hurry up with this. I don't care, mate. If it's, if it's large, I don't care. I'm going to throw it out anyway. But I knew it was so big for them, and I just wanted to belittle it as much as I can. But I had the best time ever uh, off the record. But that was a very satisfying little period. But I, that's what I said to you. I wish I had stayed in that short distance racing just for one more period because my, I'm, my early Ironmans in Kona were, were life lessons, that, that, that this is a, a sport of men and, and uh, the biggest punch doesn't win an Ironman. Just having a big shout, yelling really loud and punching hard is not going to win you an Ironman. It's consistent, hard, strong work and, and uh, kind mm. of a special beast in itself. And, and that long course is really that managing the emotions for a long, long period of time. And, you know, I, I remember racing with you in a lot of those races and uh, I think um, – you know, I won't mention names, but I remember racing the Australian champs one year at the end of the nineties and and I think you'd broken up with your girlfriend, but she'd gone with another guy and I remember running with you and Trent Chapman and we we'd broken away, the three of us had a good lead and, and I just remember you yelling profanity at the sideline to this guy or, or to your old your ex girlfriend. Yeah, <laughs> you definitely own. wore your wore your emotions on your sleeves, especially in that short course racing. But I think as you you transitioned out of that and into the Ironmans. I do think you, 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 you kept that chip, but you, you learned to manage it. You learned to manage that ego. You learned to 
to you think space you, it out over time. Yeah, you realise yeah. it's not – now, everyone called it an ego because I, I guess only the individual, as I said earlier, it, it was my alter ego, but it was my protective shield and I, I got – I matured. I guess you, you, you become a man and you, you, you become more experienced. Those early years, as we said, I was immature, but you start to mature as an Iron Man definitely matured me. But even at 27 doing my first, you know, at 28, sorry, doing my first Ironman, I should, mate, in, in, and winning it and then going to Kona, I'm too young, right? You, you, you're not – Ironman is a man, is an early 30s game, especially mm. at, that, at that Kona level. And, yeah, you, and I, I thought you could yell out and bluff it because that had worked in, in, in short course racing. And, but I was a power athlete and I, I think that I learned to manage it by having a great woman in my life, having a, building this team that I trusted, I guess retreating a lot and becoming relatively um, – I get relatively closed off and, and just and, and, and putting a group of people around me. A, a lot of people used to say, oh, Macca likes to put people around him to tell him what he wants to hear. And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what I need. Who, yeah. who, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like putting people around him to just tell him how good he is. I'm like, yeah, I do. Yeah, it's exactly what I do. And that's sort of what I built. And, and, and a lot of people didn't, I, I didn't like that group that I was with because they were – to me, they were loyalist and, and strong and, and gave me the chip, the, the, the courage to go against my own insecurities and be brave enough to challenge myself and, and to put but it out. But that's just it. I, I think identifying that it's okay that you've got insecurities, so how do we manage them best? It's, yeah. it's like you started with all of this. Look, I have this you know, imposter syndrome. Well, how do, you, how do I best manage it? You know, and and ha- build a good team around me of supportive, strong characters that are going to want the best for me, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was what that's they marched me through Ironman through bit of disappointment after bit of disappointment, and and you sort of had that period between oh three oh four. I was still winning these races, but once you start down this Ironman path, especially if you build a career in the US, and it's very different looking sport now. At least you have a seventy point three series to lean on now. That did. But once you put your name on that Ironman, no matter how good your season was, failed in Kona. Mm-hmm. I've got to have some of the most amazing seasons. Like, I mean, brilliant, winning World Cups, winning uh, half Ironman, like Wildflower, winning Alcatraz, um, winning the Swiss Grand Prix racing, winning French Grand Prix events, um, winning Roth in, in Subway, third, fourth in Kona, failure. You know, yeah. like, yeah. what? You know, and it was very – we, we, we watch Kona every year and uh, – and we watch athletes try and promote themselves and everything else, and and nothing's changed in terms of you can be a seventy point three world champion. It's a nice pat on the back, but honestly, if you call yourself an Ironman athlete, you have to win Kona. Still, yeah. I mean, that is the. But what's incredible is you. I think you you didn't win. Was it six years in a row? Was it but same oh, as Mark yeah. Allen? I think you you yeah, had six I, years. We yeah five five years and the sixth year I won. Yeah, five the sixth year you won, and then yeah. you had. Yeah. And then you came back. I think you you won what two years later. Yeah, you, my, my cone, as I remember, two thousand and two, thirteen minute lead off the bike, blew it. DNF, two thousand and three, forty ninth, two thousand and four, fourteenth, two thousand and five, fifth, two thousand and six, second, two thousand and seven, first, two thousand eight, DNF, two thousand and nine, fourth, two thousand and ten, second, um, first, and never. I'll see you later. I'm not doing. It. I, I, I didn't. And this is committing blasphemy for triathletes. And yeah, and I'm actually I'm talking to the perfect person. I hated Ironman. Oh, I you like, and me both, buddy. 
I hate <laughs> me both. <laughs> if you say that now, people are like, oh, come on, you can't be stupid. I did not enjoy the Ironman circuit. I, I, not as much as I enjoyed the racing of the ITU stuff. And I look back, it was just the machine I was on. I, I now joined this thing and I had to see it through. You, you know what I mean? It was sort of, uh, that's why I can say, well, honestly, I, think, I wish I started later I, because I through, but I, I just didn't, I did, I never loved it. Never, ever loved it. Well, I'm it. a bit like, the same when I talk long course racing. You know, I, I raced short course till I was 40. Everything was focused on short course. And then I started doing some 70.3s. And, and actually, I, I think I won eight of the 15 70.3s I did. And not one of the eight did I actually enjoy. I remember lying in bed. Laura and I had both won this 70.3. And, uh, and I, I said to her, and I was in agony and so was she. And I was like, I didn't enjoy that. And she said, yeah, me either. And it, it was, it's not to say I actually didn't mind the training. I'd moved to Boulder, Colorado, and I enjoyed some of the, the training in the mountains and the long bikes and, you know, because the intensity speed does kill you. I mean, it really does exhaust you. But, but the races themselves, you know, I, unlike you, I only did a couple of, years, a couple of Ironmans and, and uh, I enjoyed the process of the learning and, and trying to figure myself out. But I think what I did is – in my career has kind of identified myself as a power athlete. You know, I, I, I loved the belting out the 40 K on the bike. I loved fast running, trying to, you know, keep my run under 30 minutes. That was my real passion was, was that short course power racing. And, uh, it was almost like Ironman was like, for me, it was like ticking a box. So I can kind of understand what you're saying, but you did far more. I mean, you, you, you basically had eight years of your career, um, or even career more. Was way longer on the Ironman side than it was on the short course side. Way longer. Yeah, way yeah, longer. yeah. But I mean, at least you know you did get that success. At least you actually did, you know, win the Holy Grail, which is Kona. Um, when you, and and that's not just for triathlon. I think that's when you talk endurance sports. You talk about the Tour de France and some of these epic cycling races. But then you talk about Kona. Kona stands out as one of the epic one-day events in the world, and you went and won it twice. I mean, you know, we talk, I've talked about your 97 year. We talked about all your racing that you won in the early noughties. But, you know, you won Kona. And, and for somebody that, you know, you had to learn a lot to get to that point. And the knowledge and, and, the, and the self-confidence that you had to get over that time is truly, truly extraordinary. Yeah, I think the takeaway, uh, and, and I, I've spoken about this, written about it, I think what Ironman Racing did just naturally as I was, I was aging as a man, as a, you know, you sort of have these, these two people. There's you, the athlete, and then there's you, the man, right, that has mm. a family and does their things. And so you have these two, I guess I was, I was now in my early 30s and becoming into my mid-30s. I'm maturing as a man. I've got children. I've early kids. And, and Ironman, I grew up in it. You know, I, I, I went through my adolescence, it's not adolescence, in, in ITU and my immaturities and uh, almost like your pimply teens, but a, a little <laughs> bit bigger. But uh, Ironman, I became a man. I became uh, way more structured, way more um, obsessed, um, way more insular, I guess, m- more team-bound, more looking at resources on what I needed to do, a lot more professional in that sense. Um, and because I had to sort this puzzle out because I wasn't built for it. And, 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 and it was also probably there was a lot more frustrations in Ironman um, than I ever had in the short course racing, even though I never dominated short course racing. I felt that I could always work out the puzzle in short course racing. Ah, my run's off. I need to work on that. But there, there was always something there. You know, you could, you, you could highlight the problem 
and it could be fixed. So my swim's off and, and where I'm in racing, you know, I, I couldn't work it out. You know, this nutrition mm. thing, this, uh, this heat thing, these, these problems that in any other environment, I'd kill it. Like I'd go to, I'd go to, I won Frank for three times. I used to dominate that race, which is now the Europe, it was the European champion. And I'm thinking, why can't I just have that race? Okay. Mm. Because, and so it was during that period, and I, and I attribute a lot of how I came out of this sport to a lot of the processes and, and the focus and the ability to, 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 to really set a goal, to, to constantly check and recheck, to, to manage a team of people around a common goal, even though it, within sport it was relatively selfish, it was me, moving people out who didn't believe in that goal, bringing people in who I believed could help me at different points in my career. And that sort of, uh, as a person and I guess as a, as a leader, even though it was about myself, that Ironman racing period was me growing up as a man. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's why I think for me in 2010 I had three children now and I was very, very eager to, to walk away from it because it, mm. there was no love loss with the distance. I didn't, I didn't wake up and go, oh, I can't wait to be an Ironman. Some guys do, Cam Brown, and they love it. And I, I, I envy mm. them for it. I love them for it. I, I'm, mm. I was never that guy. I used to actually be sitting there in the Ironman racing watching you over there going, damn, I'd love to be doing this short stuff. I've got a big fat bum. I could get some power back on the bike. I could get skinny again and, and try and get these run times down. I'm watching Alistair Brownlee and thinking, oh, wow, imagine what it's like to race this kid. What is, what's it feel like? Or Javier Gomez like you. And what's that feel like? I never had that opportunity like you. Never mm. did it mm. in that period. So everyone sort of has that envy as we talked earlier about what the others are doing so for me in 2010 when i was done and i won it for the second time yeah it's it's, it's fantastic and it w- is without without question the single event um that the general public will always identify me as but now i'm talking to you as athlete to athlete um it's it's for me it was a journey that i'm, I'm happy i did but it was never a journey that i i was as passionate and and and, and loved as much as i and to do that's why in when I left that sport, I tried to make the Olympics for London and my midlife crisis, as my wife called me, and now <laughs> now, uh, now, I'm doing everything around short course racing because I, I truly believe the talent, the, the, the youth, the, the passion of sport still lies in that young echelon of people. Like they're just raw and, and, and you know, I remember being that and you just there's just so much there that can be moulded and, and they can do such amazing things that there just needs to be some focus on it. And Ironman racing. So let, let, let's let's talk about that a little bit now because I, um, for me, one of the things that's impressed me most most about you is um, th- this what you're doing now. And this is the the Super League Triathlon, amongst other things. I mean, you, the CEO of the Bahrain Endurance Team, and, and which is just the world's greatest group of endurance athletes under the one sort of banner which you've put together which is incredible but also this super league which i uh, i chatted with simon whitfield recently about it and we just sung your praises we just um you know we all grew up in the 90s with live television and, and this this short super sprint racing let's call it um yeah. powerful fast action uh, and showing the raw talent of of um endurance athletes and You've put this t- this together, and a lot of that you, you touched on you, your ability to build a great team around you. And and I always say a, a great team is not just people that are experts in their field; it's and experts in in their field that truly want the best for you or the product that they're working for. And it seems to me the product that you're delivering now with the Super League Triathlon, the Global Series, is is truly you've got a great team, and and it seems to be not only that you. 
you've got a great series and you've also connected well with the ITU World Series. Whereas yeah. in the 90s when we had the Grand Prix, it was really disruptive with the ITU and there was this real like, if you're going to do that series, you can't do this series. But you've brought it all together and you have this incredible series that anybody can watch online and it's it's just remarkable. So tell me about that, how it all started and how you got it going and well, where I, is it off to? I think, yeah, it started for me. I, I think it retired and moved to Asia and, and – um, and uh, and you, as as we do now, you get relatively reflective on your career, and that was my most enjoyable racing. And the the gentleman that ran that Formula One series in Australia that that, that built so many champions is a guy called Damien Bray. And Damien was living in Singapore. Um, my company is set up in Singapore. I live in Thailand. I was running a big sports center here and and building a school. And I'd set up a company structure which I'd had for years in in Singapore. So I was always going back and forth to Singapore. And uh, by chance, I bumped into Damo and we had a couple of beers and drinks and laughed about the old days. And he's like, I can't believe a fat kid like you went on to have a career. It was just a fantastic – I hadn't seen him for years. And, uh, and I said, well, I want to – like I, I really want to bring that type of racing back. It's been – I think like anything, what is old is new again at some point and there's been a whole generation of people that don't remember that. So it can almost be recast, reset, redone with, with moderate changes. And the way we do media now is so different than it was back then. You can use multiple platforms to distribute it and build it. And, and Damien said, look, it's, it's tough. These are the headwinds you're going to face. Disruption, you're a disruptor, which the governing bodies never like, so be careful. Um, it's very, very difficult. We tried to go global focus on one market like we did in Australia. It's very, very easy to keep everything in one market. You chase a single sponsor and, and can fund it that way It's and you're not moving people around the world. And uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, you need a lot of money. I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, number one, I don't want to be in one market. That's That's been done. We're going to the world. I want to be the super league, mate. I want to be the best league in the world, like the, the Champions League of football. I want to take the world best WTS athletes, best ITU athletes in the world. I want to race them for the biggest prize person, broadcast it to the world because I believe these athletes are the best. And I can't believe within our sport, people that even do triathlete don't even recognize how good these guys are. And Dame, mm-hmm. said, I've always loved you, Mackie, the most optimistic guy. I shook my hand and said, best of luck with it. And so <laughs> I, 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 by chance, I, I was doing a conference in, in Russia. And I'd flown up to Moscow from Thailand for part of the, the – I was running the Tanyapura Centre here and I was mm-hmm. doing like a keynote speaker in Moscow in a, a sports conference along with Brett Sutton. And I uh, sat down with Brett and I told him that I wanted to bring back the Formula One series and I wanted to call it Super League. He said, mate, good luck. Never at me. I said, okay. And it's like when you put things to the universe, they're meant to be. And I, I, I had a meeting, I did this talk, and then I got asked to come to a dinner with a, with a gentleman who – at that point, I had never met before in my life. He's now my business partner. And he, um, he took me out for dinner in Moscow with a group of Russians and uh, we're talking about it. They'd read my book and by chance, one of the guys at this meeting, had, I'd written his book. My father calls it the greatest fiction novel ever written. Um, and <laughs> um, I read this. They translated, these guys had translated this book into Russian. So it was the only book in Russia, if you did triathlon, Everybody's read this Chris McCormack book. It's the only one there. So I remember telling out the Russia. Everybody knew who I was, and basically I could be anyone I wanted to be. So they've read this book and they took me out and they're asking me all these questions. Anyway, I was a challenge ambassador. So I used to work, I signed a deal to be an ambassador for the other, I guess the enemy of Ironman. 
And they were looking at an acquisition of challenge, uh, uh, potentially investing in challenge. And they were asking me going through all the, all the processes. And I remember thinking, boom, it just popped in my head. I said, look, I love challenge. I'm their ambassador. Here's the difficulties you're going to have with this entity. It needs a lot of investment. I've got an, a new concept. It's a, it's a closed league. We own the world's best athletes. Um, we broadcast into the world. We take very, very short distances. We have eliminations. We have all this stuff, and we have we focus our mass participation on the corporate market. Don't go after after big mass participation. That's a dying breed. Um, and let's let's go after audience size. And, and I didn't know who these people were, but the gentleman I was talking to happens to be one of the biggest IT investors in the world. So I just happened to gel with him because everything he talks about in IT world, in he invented basically the Google of Russia is audience, growing an audience, building, you know, getting more and more audience. He's like, okay, interesting, Chris, tell me more. And he just kept prompting me. Uh, luckily, we'd done this Formula One series, so every question he had, I talked from experience. I was like, well, this is how you do that. Here's a format called Enduro. It's swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run, but I, I do it three times. We'd eliminate each time. So that's a great idea. He said, would you get the athletes involved? I said, we own all the uniform rights. We own everything. We just pay them. He's like, look, very, very interested. Um, can I meet you in London next week? Now I flew back to Thailand and I had to, I was working here. I took some holiday leave and I got on a plane. I flew straight to London. I took, who's now the CEO of Super League, a, a guy who was working for me, one of my close friends I'd known for five or six years prior. And um, he was working with me here in Thailand. And I, I remember vividly landing here and saying, mate, I met this guy. We've got to do this. And he, unlike you and I, he had no idea. What, what do you mean 300 meters swim? How's that going to work? I'm like, just shut up, write this down. <laughs> you're good on the computer you can do all these beautiful documents and stuff make, make this beautiful document and put this in and this in and, and I just built uh, I guess a modernised version of the Formula 1 series with changing formats and different names and, and different rules and different uh, different uniforms and, and Michael's magnificent at doing PowerPoint presentations and we built this incredible pitch deck and then luckily my old boss I used to work with at, at, at um at Bankers Trust, not my old boss, an old friend who's now one of the bosses there at Reuters. I rang him and said, look, how do I, how do I submit a pitch deck to, to raise capital? Can you help me with this? He said, what's the valuation? I said, I don't know. He said, well, how much money do you need? I said, I don't know. I don't know. As much as possible. <laughs> as much as possible but you need to pin it to what, what you're going to spend it on, what's this, like all the forecasting, all the modelling for, for raising capital. So I went, flew back to Sydney. I built all this all in the space of a week and I flew to London and I sat with Leonid and, uh, and I walked him through it. And he said, I love it. Boom. Here's your first round of funding. I'll value the company at X and I'll, I'll put funding in. I want to be a, a, a partner and uh, you've got to deliver an event. And that was when you've got to deliver an event and you've got to have um, certain athletes join it. And that was sort of how the event started. Um, the Olympics came on. I secured a lot of the athletes. That's why I sort of went across to Rio and secured a lot of the athletes in Rio, brought them to the event. And we're going to raise, we're going to have a men's and women's race in Hamilton Island. But post the Olympics, Gwen Jorgensen and, and um, um, fell pregnant. So she wasn't racing. Erin Denshin was. A lot of the best women at that period weren't, weren't keen to race or weren't racing because they weren't doing it. So I put an event on in Hamilton Island, which was just a testing bed to show mm-hmm. my investor and to show the world what Super League potentially could be. And uh, we ran it on a really tight budget. Australia's really expensive. And um, mm. and um, we delivered the event and it just overachieved. And, of course, it was all tracked and uh, second round of funding came in and we got a, a second investor, a guy out of Jersey, 
who owns rugby clubs and valuation grew and grew. And so I've been lucky that we've got, you know, Leonid is a big believer in the sport. He loves the concept, who also has a big has big backing. We, we, we hit all the KPIs that he sets. Um, in audience growth, we're above and beyond any other any other sports entity within this endurance space on on viewership, on on audience size, on everything. So all those matrix we we kill. So because we're achieving all these things, like in any 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 startup business, you get more and more interested parties that come in and, and invest. And and basically, as I said, as a I'm just doing the same thing in a different field. I'm just managing people to, mm-hmm. to, to pursue a certain goal. And those goals are either audience, marketing, um, venues. Um, it's the politics of triathlon, which I never realised was so heavy, and, and suddenly you're an ink spot, no one cares about you, and then you deliver a fantastic event, and then you're the, the antichrist, and everybody wants to hate you. But that that <laughs> I, I find it that, that chip on my shoulder that I used to have as an athlete, I find it also works. I get okay, you want to do that, bang, and I and I, I apply that in the same way in business, and and the series has sort of morphed and, and been born, and we've sort of we've. We're growing and growing and growing. We've done a deal with the ITU where we, we coexist and, and we've taken an Olympic break now to give the respect to the Olympic Games, which the athletes and myself and everyone are happy about. And then post the Olympics, we roll out with Singapore and Thailand and a China race and then three in Europe and the grand final in Dubai. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's been honestly, Greg, a, a fantastic. I, I love it because I would never have met a lot of mm. these young talent. I would never have never been involved in, 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 in building it up and, and, and to a lot of them who didn't know any, who didn't know what they're loving it in the same way we did, and having them come up and go, mate, this is the best racing ever. I'm like, I know, man. You know, they're, they're experiencing know. the same things we experienced. And well, it's, it's funny, you know, Whitfield and I were saying the other day, it's like if you're a young athlete now, there's one series. If you want to become one of the greats, there's one series you need to get, be a part of. You know, I have a I have a young niece named Kemper Reback. And yeah. Kemper is actually named after the Hunter Kemper, one of the best American men that we raced for many, many years. And since about the age of five or six, for every birthday she has sort of in mid-November, she's asked for a birthday present that myself and Laura would go for a run with her because all she's ever wanted to be is a professional triathlete, like completely different to you and I where we found the sport a bit later. This this young girl, she's now 19, and she's wondering, okay, what are her next steps? You know, she's ranked sort of top 10 junior in America. I said, look, there's one series – that you need to be a part of. I said, I know this guy. I know this guy, Chris oh, McCormack's right. putting on this incredible series and you need to figure out how to get into it. And when I watched your last event, you know, you have that junior racing going yeah. on the morning of and some of those juniors qualify for the open race the next day, which is tough on them because they, they're having to race a junior and then they qualify for the open race. And they did remarkably well. Yes. And if you want to be the best in the world, it's like, like you said, in the 90s, Australia, we had eight of us ranked in the top, 20 in the world at one time because we all came out of this super sprint racing and if you're a young athlete now and you know there's the ncaa program here in the college system and there's these all these other pathways you can go through i'm like throw all that away (laughs) there's one series you need to be a part of figure it out get yourself on the start line of super league and it's easy to get in greg because i i guess the 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 people are dominating the nation that's dominating right now is the french because they've embraced it more than anybody Right and and mm. they dominate head to toe, and they are mm. the whole entire federate the French Federation are just parking athletes. It's sometimes I'm like, guys, you can't send any more French. It's going to be a French Grand Prix series. Like, God, they're like, mm. we can't believe, we we just cannot believe, and we want to get in there now before the other federations grow up. And you're seeing it with the results. Like, 
Vincent Louis is a world champion. He won our series. If you look at all the guys through the through the Super League series, they're all Hayden Wild. No one knew him. No one wanted yeah. Oh, he's right there. All out of Super League. And anyone who does their all those data guys is sit there. You're gonna there's going to be the guys that do the series, and there's going to be the guys that don't do the series, and it's going to be a stark difference. And it's just we just haven't run long enough. We saw it in, the, in back in the nineties. We haven't run long enough for that stark distance difference to be obvious. But the French have highlighted yeah. it very very quickly. And well, last year or this year, the, like twenty nineteen, you had Katie Zafaris yep. win the world champ ITU and world championships and, and yeah. win your series, Taylor Spike. They all come out. Vincent Louis wins the world championship, wins your series. I mean, it's 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 kind of an. I said if I was the high performance manager of Australia, Canada, America, or whoever I was, forget all the funding of pathways. Let your athletes race and get them on the start line to races. And there's no better racing than this super sprint racing. What the best thing about it? You race three to six times on a weekend. Yeah, twenty minute little races, and every time you hop on the start line, imagine being a young guy now, and you get to race Mario Mala, Vincent Louis, and these incredible athletes. Okay, one race you're beaten by a minute thirty. Next race you're beaten by a minute ten. Next race you're beaten by forty seconds. Hang on, I'm side by side with Vincent exactly. for four hundred meters into the run. That's how we learnt our trade. There is no better way than racing the best and as many times as you can. Yeah, and 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 the refinement. I've I've tried to bring in all these things with the jerseys and the refinement of transitions and and the funding we have, like jersey winners. Now we have, you know, you're winning twenty five thousand yeah. dollars to win the jersey. It's 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 trying to build a professional arm built around the professional athletes. It's a different era, without question. These a lot of the kids now are more after Instagram likes and and, uh, and so, <laughs> than than dollars in their bank account. But that's just. I'm sounding more and more like my father when I talk to them about it, but it's it's I'm trying to build for them a, a series. And what I, as I was saying for your for your niece, is there is no barriers to entry for this. I wanted to be as clear as day, and, and I got myself into some trouble by saying there is no murky waters. If if you think you're good enough, I don't care whether you're blue, black, orange, yellow. Your federation hates you, or loves you. Turn up to one of these qualifiers. You qualify, you're in. We we fund you the entire way, and if you're a youth, we've we've worked with the governing body and the and the federations to deliver the first ever youth and junior series, where these kids love it because we mm. give them the same experience as they would be as they're a professional. In fact, they access the locker rooms with the professionals, and the top two in the men's race and the top two in the women's race and the juniors have the opportunity to take a start on the start line. You know, in, in Jersey. For the professional race in the afternoon, sure, they've raced one extra race, but it's only heats on the Saturday, and that's why So most of the guys aren't going through at, at flat pace, so at flat out. So a lot of these young junior kids get this opportunity to race a Vincent Louis or a, a Katie Zafaris, which they would never have had before, and potentially put themselves into the final on the Sunday and, and be broadcast to more than a billion people around the world, but racing for a quarter of a million dollars. It's It's... Mm. It's an opportunity. I, I sometimes scratch my head thinking far out, knowing my old crew of Australian guys like yourself, and we would have run over mm. anybody to get to access to that type of capital. <laughs> <laughs> what? They're paying yeah. how much I'm there? And it's it's uh, we, it's it's enjoyable, and, and I'm going through that process and, and learning, and, and I just love the no no barriers to entry. Everybody's in. And everybody has a chance. And I try and it's keep the up. only way to it's the only way to do it. I can't stand pathway systems where they, you know, I, I look at these youth pathway systems that these federations, uh, you know, create, which is like, oh, we're going to pick six or eight kids that are going to go through. They're all burnt out by the age of twenty-two, and the other kids that didn't get to be a part of the pathway are like, oh well, to hell with triathlon. It yeah. doesn't work. You've yeah. got to keep an open door policy, and you've got to allow kids just to race and. 
you know, anybody that hasn't watched this series, uh, you know, it's just Super League, Super League. Uh, what's the website? Triathlon.com is our website. You can watch all. We've yeah. got all the archives of all the events now. Oh. Usually in the If state. you love triathlon or anything, this is, it truly is, you know, I enjoy every year sitting down and watching the Ironman and it's my, you know, I enjoy it. I, I've got a lot of mates in it. But honestly, if I just want to watch true athletic talent, really tight, fun entertainment, you know, and the way that you guys have put together all the different jerseys and the, the little bonus things that you can get, it, it's, uh, it really is remarkable um, just to watch. And we're watching, you know, this new, uh, these French kids, like you said, um, uh, Burgrant, the yeah, young yeah. female. Uh, she, she, Cassandra, she, she's just a, a brilliant athlete. But so you've got all that going. You've also, you're the CEO of this Bahrain endurance team, which I said at the top of the show. <laughs> How do you how do you put all of this together? I mean, you've got your great team. You're flying all over the world. Every time I see you on social media, you're hopping on another plane. Um, are you able? Are you still able to look after your your health and your wellness as you're doing this? Your sleep, your recovery, your nutrition, your body work. We're, you know we're, how, how we're, we're multi sport athletes. I need to do more. I've always been. <laughs> I think I can look back now and honestly say I think my father encouraged my running because I was chronically ADD. So I think I um I uh. I enjoy the. Am I looking after myself? Am I riding like I used to? No, am I? I've definitely. I'm. Uh, I'm running more than anything. When I say running, nothing near where I used to be. I run like seven k every morning, just a jog, mm. and uh, I just enjoy it. I don't. You know, I don't, being around these these high performers, yeah, yeah. I I guess I get my feed off them without having to. Mm suffer the indignity or not indignity but suffer the, the toughness of training as much as we used to but mm. i um yeah it's it's i living in asia has been a blessing because I, I couldn't do this if i was living in australia um you know we've always talked about potentially going home but we we actually love it here i don't think we'll ever go home um to mm. Oz because it's a you know europe's a 10-hour joint emirates straight in it's it's easy we've got our office in london now um <laughs> And I've got a little, I've got a little apartment in London, which is is great. So I, I don't travel with any luggage, and I, and so it's 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 pretty easy. It's it's yeah, I'm going around with other things, but I'm not the the, the jumps to the states are always difficult. But I'm only in the states probably once a year, and that's usually just on holidays to catch up with friends or, and mm. uh, so everything's sort of done in this in this this corridor, and and living in Asia is very very easy in that sense. So because you know you have good airplanes, good everything from here, so. Yeah, it's 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 sort of I guess it's filled that void as we talked about earlier that transitional period. It's filled that void of time that I think that that that, that I guess habits and that consistency that you're used to doing and applying to training. Now I can I apply it elsewhere, and I, and I get that feed I guess of of goal chasing and 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 problem solving and all these things that we we took for granted in sport because you always think of sport as such a physical thing, but there's all those mental things that are such a big part of everything mm. we do as an athlete. And I guess I get that feed from that and it's sort of switched where I, I just go for a jog with Emma. And I have, however, entered the Marathon de Sables this year with a group of friends, which is a, an ultra run, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which everyone's laughing about because I'm literally – haven't started training at all yet, but luckily these guys are, are not super athletes ever either. So it's mainly basically just a to complete together and, and a bit of a fun six days away with with a couple of good mates. So yeah, that's like you do a marathon a day for six days or something, isn't it? Yeah, there's a few. There's one 90k day which is freaking me out. 
because uh, I've never, as I said, where, even before I did Ironman, I used to tell you I didn't run more than an hour. I've never run one step more than 42 kilometres and I've only ever done that. And then I crossed that line in Ironman, I was like, boom, done. I've never done anything <laughs> longer. So it, that 90K is going to be very, very difficult. But, mate, you'll run and walk it and, and those – that drive to win anything or that that's done, I really apply that in other avenues now. And, and, I, and mm. I get, as I said, I get that feed from the corporate side and, and I just enjoy the, the culture and the lifestyle of the, you know, I'm going to do the London Marathon with the African Parks Foundation next year. I've got a bet with a friend of mine, uh, 25 to 1 odds. He's a big owner of Darfabet, this big gambling agency. So it's it's actually it's actually an honest bet for both of us because he can afford to lose what he's prepared to lose and if if I win it'll change it'd be very very nice for me and I can afford to lose what I'm going to lose but it's we both have to not take it for granted because I've got to break um, two fifty five which I can do Ooh. but I'm definitely not training right and uh, and he has to break three forty five so he's capable of, we're both it's very very fair if he doesn't train he'll probably do. 350, 355. If I don't train, I could probably do three hours. I can, in, so it's basically <laughs> a, very, a very, very honest bet. So yeah. uh, London is uh, at the end of April. But there, that's sort of the, the the exercise I'm doing, really. That, that's good, though. But you've been able to, you know, you can even just hear it in your voice and, and see what you're achieving on the world stage. You've obviously transitioned very well a lot of what you learned in sport, you know, sleep and recovery, nutrition and body work and, and just maintaining a general health. Yeah. You know, I can hear it in your voice and see what you're doing, that you've, you're keeping your energy alive and, um, you know, and then you've got your family and everything on top of that. You know, see, so you're on the go a lot. And I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, once you get going, once you find your passion, you know, you'll do everything you can to to sustain that. And uh, have you got any um, recommendations for anybody sort of listening now about, uh, you know, if they're whether they're an endurance athlete or, um, you know, they're a high performer in whatever field they're trying to do in terms of ways that they can better themselves, whether it be through gear, like swim, bike, run type stuff or recovery tips that you have or any nutrition advice that you have? Don't get fat, I can tell you that, because uh, I'm, I'm a lot heavier now. <laughs> I don't know if that's good <laughs> because I, you know, we often talk about being leaner and, and I think triathletes are, are very, very lean beings just because of the workload we do. But it's not until you put a few proper kilos on. You know, as, as athletes we go, oh, I'm a bit heavy at the moment, but, mate, get properly heavy and see the – get properly heavily and see how difficult and, and you can appreciate how fit you, you really were and how difficult the comeback is. Um, so that's one thing. But, no, in, in, honest, in all honesty, I think if I can give any advice to any athlete out there that's an amateur that's pursuing an Ironman goal or pursuing a marathon goal, um, Rome, champions aren't built out of one session. You know, it's it's the true champions of the sport or the true successful people in any sport is consistent work and mm-hmm. and consistency doesn't need to be consistent, exceptional work. And I, I'm sure, Greg, how many times did you do two weeks of crappy drama and I feel crappy and then you sort of come out of this this doldrum training block but you, you, you sort of rise. It's, it's, it's not always going to feel fantastic. I think a lot of people, people I've worked with, especially a lot of the corporates I've worked with, God, I had three days I felt crappy, so I just stopped for – I had a week off. I'm like, eh, you know, you're not always going to feel great and you may not feel great multiple times in a row. But so, but it's just consistently doing a work um, is critical. Um, having someone to bounce, like I always say a coach is great. And a lot of people say, oh, I can get an online coach. I said, yeah, get an online coach. 
make sure you, you, you have the ability to, to bounce your fears and insecurities and your training problems off that coach and use that resource. A lot of a lot of athletes are like, oh, my coach sends me on my program. And I speak to them once a month. I'm like, I, I just, I, I just couldn't do that, right? Uh, mm. And I think, I think if you if you really are driven to 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 be better, and what, what what being better looks like for you is different for everyone, but be better. Then use the resources you have. Be your own CEO within your own endurance world, and and, and access those and 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 bounce your insecurities and fears off your coach and, and make those adjustments in your training with consistency being the key. On the nutrition side, man, there's so much going around now with nutrition. I'm so confused. I'm so <laughs> You and me both. <laughs> Everybody as an athlete is now banned or not banned, like, oh, it's horrible and I'm going to die of cancer. So uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> this guy's a vegetarian. This guy's a paleo. This guy's a, a only eats fat. This guy only eats – I'm like, I don't know. Because I, I, I just – I think – I think you know you and I both. I remember doing Google Games with you in '98. We stopped at McDonald's on the <laughs> between it. Like it's just it's. I, I think the most important thing in any in anything we're doing is to enjoy it, is to keep it fun. Um, when mm. when it's no longer fun, the results aren't going to be there. All right, and mm. if it's not fun, don't force yourself to do it. Find something else until it does become fun again. Fun for me would be enjoyment and, and joy from doing it would be at the top of the list of all the most important things you have to look for as an amateur athlete. And when that joy is no longer there and it's become you become a machine and it's all about it's obsessive, it, it becomes relatively cancerous and, you know, and, and the results can drop off. That's awesome. And I think that's a great way to finish up, buddy. Ooh. I think uh, – you know, the, I think that also sums you up. I think, you know, you've always been a guy that's had a big smile on his face and has looked like he's enjoying himself, you know, 90% of the time. Grimace, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so how do people uh, follow you on social media to watch all that you, you're doing and stuff? What, what, what oh, do you right, tagline? Right, this, this is new era for us, isn't it? So I wife- know, I know. I, I didn't even know I had to ask this question, but let's put it here for everybody. <laughs> uh, websites don't exist anymore. So for the millennials, websites are where we used to go. But now um, on Instagram, which I do use, I'm at Macanow. So M A C C A N O W now meaning right this minute, mm-hmm. but and, and um, Facebook <laughs> is just my name or Macca, and that's all I do. I, I am on Twitter as Macca now as well, but all right, perfect. Twitter I just read Donald Trump stuff and, and all the stuff in the states. So it's not really uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and for everybody, just a reminder again: uh, the the superleaguetriathlon dot com is is a yeah. must see. We're going to have to wait post Olympics for. 2020 but go on and check out all the archives um, all and the also just watch the so you, can, you can follow the qualifiers which will all be streamed this year our next qualifier okay. will be in our next one is bali then we have salinas in ecuador um berlin and ottawa yeah and that's all, all right six months Yes. Beautiful. And, and then also just keep an eye on, on the amazing athletes in your team, the Bahrain Endurance team. Um, I think I saw that you've got Mo Farah and, and, um, and uh, who Cav- else did I see on that? Cav- yeah, Cavendish, yeah, Mark yeah. Cavendish. Uh, and then a whole bunch of Jan Fredino, Javier Gomez, Alistair Brownlee, um, Vincent Louis. You basically got the best of the best triathletes. Uh, um, the women, you got Daniela Riff and uh, Holly. Holly um, Lauren mm-hmm. Parker, who's a Paralympian, she's going to win the Olympics. Amazing story, Lauren. She's going to win Tokyo next year. Mm-hmm. She, she was second in Kona as an able body athlete in 2015. So she's got a remarkable story. So check that out. It's incredible. 
incredible. That's story. awesome, buddy. Thanks, everybody, for joining Chris McCormack, a.k.a. Macker, and myself on Be With Champions. This was an absolute blast. Um, until next time, buddy, I hope our paths cross again. I might have to get involved in this Super League triathlon. No, I love what we're you're doing. Put, we're going to put a, a <laughs> together for sure. But you're going to be very, very busy. With the second right. fight, you've got a lot of uh, very, very busy boy. Absolutely. Stay online for a second, mate, and uh, thanks again, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page, or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.